I'm Bryce Miller. And I'm Jacob Schatz. And this is Talking Atlas. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Talking Atlas. Your lies do not tell untruths. We are finally getting back around to a brilliant spectrum. It's been almost half a year since we've done one. And actually, this time, there's not another fake out despite it being spoiler season. We'll cover the remainder of Ixalan spoilers next week. We have this nice interlude to deliver upon those that really want some color philosophy. So, since we haven't really done this in a long time, quick explanation. Brilliant Spectrum is a segment where we talk about each two-color combination in turn. We start about discussing broadly what each individual color philosophically means. If it's for a person, how would it act? After that, we iterate through a bunch of different organizations throughout the Magic Universe, usually based around creature tribes or organizations that are formalized around a color, as a larger lens or additional lenses of viewing this particular color combination. And the usual caveat, generally people would use Rakdos as a shorthand for the combination black-red. We are going to avoid doing that for the sake of this episode, so you know if we say Rakdos, we mean the Ravnican guild that is red-black, known as Rakdos, as opposed to the color combination. With all that in mind, let's start talking about mono-black. Mono-black's ethos is often described as greatness at any cost. See Dark Confidant. Black is a color that cares a lot about ambition. It cares a lot about the self. In a way, it's a little bit distinct from blue, whereas blue would seek to maybe better itself and, and train and learn. Black is more likely to better the self by any means necessary. That isn't necessarily always evil, but oftentimes is characterized as such. See, black doesn't really see things in terms of good and evil. Black thinks that it's got the world figured out. There's power in the world. And if you don't seek that power, someone else is going to. Also, if you don't seek that power and do anything to obtain it, then you're holding yourself back in ways that other people aren't going to, which makes you less likely to get the power, which makes it more likely that someone else is going to use that power against you. It's all so simple. Just stop worrying about what other people think and do whatever is necessary to get what you want. Even if it hurts like a lot of people. Like... Like a lot of people. Like a, a, a whole lot of people. And it doesn't necessarily have to hurt a whole lot of people. That's why being mono-black doesn't necessarily make you evil. But mono-black is the color that is most likely to perform acts that are considered outright evil. But it will also often admit that what it's doing is evil. It just won't necessarily care if it is. It's less that black thinks of itself as evil and more that it thinks that traditional morality is kind of bunk. So, yeah, people might call me evil, but I just am. And I want to stress that when we say that being mono-black or having black in your color identity doesn't make you necessarily evil, we're not saying that just for the sake of semantics. Yes, if you are self-motivated or motivated by ambition, understandably you will trend towards not caring about people more often, but you absolutely can have mono-black Heroes, people that are motivated by something positive, but it also might benefit them. You mean like my favorite child, Yeheni? Yes, I was thinking just the same. Yeheni is an Aetherborn from the plain of Kaladesh who learns that they have vampiric powers, which is to say that they can steal the life force of others to extend their own. Through Yeheni's character arc in the Kaladesh story, 
they figure out that they do need to use their powers. They need to survive in order to save the people and things that they care about. They're doing whatever it takes to accomplish their goals. That's a mono-black philosophy. But their goals are also more noble, because they're aligned with the revolutionaries on Kaladesh. I think it could be argued that Yeheni could in some ways end up being white-black, because they are doing things that benefit the wider community, the community that they care about, while also doing a thing that benefited themselves. But I think I'm okay with having them in mono-black because we can understand that maybe it's a, pro- a large motivating factor that they can extend their life, oh, and also do something useful. Not to say that they are that flippant about it either. And also, at the end of the day, Yeheni's only real goal is to be able to throw rad parties, which is probably a little bit mono-black. Yeah, I think so. We'll probably talk a little bit more about, well, not quite parties, but celebrations, shall we say, when we get to the Rakdos in a little bit. First, though, let's check in on Mono Red. Primarily, Mono Red is the color of emotion and of free will. Mono Red is going to do whatever it wants to do, not because it furthers any goals necessarily, outside of the goal of, I am a living and free being, I do what I want. The difference between Mono Black and Mono Red is that Mono Black says, I want to achieve that, so I'm going to do whatever I want. And then Red goes, That seems fun! I'm going to do whatever I want! <laughs> Tone is important, kids. Mono red is the color that is most likely to chafe under some organized rule. That can be, in a grand kind of governmental sense, touching back on Kaladesh, there was a very strong red element in the resistance while there was the overarching white-aligned controlling force. Because community is a very white-aligned concept, but there was the oppression element that was being added to that so the red was, I'm, I'm fighting back. That's, we should not have this, I want to live free. Let's do something else. Let's do something else is a pretty good summary of the ethos for Mono Red. Sometimes it likes change just for change's sake. I haven't done this before, let's give it a shot. What would it do? I don't know, that's the exciting part. We'll find out. In that way, Mono Red is also the color of action, because the only way for Red to find out anything is by doing something. Red kind of scoffs at the idea that Blue can sit in its library and learn about the world through books and ideas and all of this thinking nonsense. The only way that Red wants to learn anything is by getting out there, making it happen, and dealing with the consequences after we figured out what they are. I often think about how useful of a tool the color pie is for describing, not fully characterizing, obviously, but describing the attitudes of people that I know and some of what we talked about, the I do what I want, I haven't tried it, so let's see what happens, are things that I can imagine very clearly in particular friends of mine. The color pie coming to life, as it were. One of the unfortunate overlaps between mono black and mono red is collateral damage, but there is a slight difference between the two. Mono black sees collateral damage as a necessary part of the process. It understands that people are going to get hurt when it tries to do what it wants, and just accepts that. This is a necessary price for me to get my power. Mono Red doesn't really think about collateral damage until after it happens, and it's not always okay with it, but only because it didn't see it coming. Impulsive decisions can lead to unfortunate circumstances, and Mono Red is the color most likely to have the unfortunate circumstances, but will also go, oh no, geez, I'm so sorry. I didn't, I just, I didn't know. 
And now, getting into our lengthy list of organizations that characterize Red Black in some form, we will start, as always, with the Ravnican Guild, in this case, the Rakdos. The Cult of Rakdos. Named after a big ugly demon. So you can maybe tell where we're going with this. The central ethos of the Rakdos is a kind of reckless abandon. It's a very particular element of Black Red that Rakdos likes to do dangerous, disgusting, gory, generally risk-filled things for the sake of entertainment and the sake of kind of just living their lives. Someone's going to die. Of fun. (laughs) No, they're probably going to die of massive chest wounds, but it'll be fun for everyone else. And honestly, maybe for that person too. To an extent, red-black could be said to be the color combination of sadism. It's some sort of distinct representation of what you want to do that involves the painful, maybe involuntary, subjugation of someone else. It's not just that you're trying to attain something at the expense of others. It's that you are loving it while you do it. And that is the difference between a mono-black motivation and a black-red motivation. When I mention these events that the Rakdos have, they're basically circuses. They have circuses and gladiatorial combat, except they are an order of magnitude more gory than you would expect those things to be. So in some ways, there's a lot of vicarious sadism that happens as well. If you look at it in a way, the Rakdos are actually a pretty strong condemnation of some of the voyeuristic blood sports. I mean, obviously, nothing that we have nowadays is quite on the level that the Rakdos are doing, but they're still holding events where you get to watch other people beat the living crap out of each other. Or be killed, potentially. Yeah, I mean, we have some smaller versions of that in modern sporting events. Probably the closest modern analogy that I can think of would be bullfighting in Spain. Mm, yes. Which, let me tell you, I once observed in person, and it is horrifying. I'm not going to take any big moralistic stand here, but I imagine a small connection to how an outsider would feel watching the Rakdos. This was observing an animal be butchered for a crowd's entertainment on the basis of some kind of historical tradition, and it made me nauseous. Not even the blood made me nauseous. The fact that it existed and continued to be supported made me nauseous. An event that has since fallen out of favor, but I think that the Rakdos would absolutely indulge in, and might even be tame for them, is this old idea of what's called hardcore professional wrestling. Professional wrestling is orchestrated, shall we say. Theatrical. Theatrical, yeah. And uh, a lot of people think that that word correlates to fake. And, uh, okay, I'm not going to go into a full diatribe here, but there are certain elements of the show that are orchestrated, and there's other parts of the show that are very real. People take actual hits. People fall from very high places. Hardcore professional wrestling is back in the 80s and early 90s, where the idea of doing massive amounts of damage to your uh, competitors was actually part of the goal. One of the most impressive wrestlers from this era and from this genre is named Mick Foley, and the man sustained an astounding amount of physical damage to himself, including falling on piles of thumbtacks, taking actual headshots from folding chairs steel folding chairs 
falling through the roof of a steel cage after being thrown through it by The Undertaker, a man who is roughly the size of a tractor. None of these stunts were faked. He actually got put into an ambulance and then staggered back out of it onto the wrestling ring, and his competitor who had put him into the ambulance looked terrified because this guy should not have been conscious, or very nearly alive. But he did it all for entertainment. Uh. I don't recommend doing what Mick Foley does, but also he's probably the hardest working man who has ever worked in professional wrestling, putting an excruciating amount of his own life on the line multiple times. Generally speaking, we don't have a don't try this at home disclaimer on Talking Atlas, but don't try that at home. Do not try to be Mick Foley. Mick Foley doesn't recommend being Mick Foley. <laughs> an actual quote from him is, I didn't do this because I liked it. I did it because I was good at it. Oh, I've heard that used to justify a lot of painful things, but usually not literally painful things. Yeah, everybody assumes that he's a masochist because he went through all of this physical trauma, but he says, no, I didn't enjoy doing it. It's just that I could do it more than anybody else alive, and it paid some really nice bills. <laughs> Ugh. Not even halfway in, and already this brilliant spectrum has gotten really real. Let's go to something far less real, like Grixis. Yes, Grixis is a bit of a caricature. Grixis is dead until it's not, repeatedly. Grixis is the black-blue-red shard of Alara, so piece of plane that got reforged with the rest of the plane. And it's pretty much all wasteland with a couple of necropolis... Necropoli? Necropolipses. It is not necropolipses. <laughs> Sprinkled throughout. The ethos of Grixis is that nothing dead really remains dead. In fact, the mechanic of Grixis was Unearth, where you can pay a cost on a creature. It's an activated ability of creatures in graveyards to temporarily have them kind of lunge back from the dead, get one last swing in, and then vanish. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. The Shards of Alara are fairly one-dimensional in their characterization, and that's most of Grixis. The Wasteland look is almost universal. So I think the red-black element of this, from the black side you probably get the greatness at any cost, including pulling things out of the grave, no matter who they might be, friend, foe, what have you. The red side, perhaps you get some of the spontaneity of it all. The reanimation magic that is expressed in Unearth, it's not especially, it, it takes some smarts, so I can understand how there might be blue in there. Some random schmo can't just go cast reanimation spell and pull something out of the grave. But I can understand the red being expressed through, this is very temporary. You're not holding it together for long. The way that I see blue and red interplaying with the central, black, deathly tenant of Grixis is, it works kind of like this. Blue represents the idea that for Grixis, death is just another system to be manipulated. Death isn't anything special on Grixis. It happens over and over again, constantly. It's weirder if you're not a lich in some ways. If you haven't died and come back, you're not really trying. <laughs> and the red side is, as you say, the spontaneity, the chaos of it all. Things are raised and killed on a whim. Nothing is constant. It's a storm of bones, basically. Stuff comes back half-formed, stuff comes back temporarily, and then it immediately dies. There's not a whole lot of consistency or meaningful death on Grixis, because it's all so temporary. I think your description of how blue influences that is spot on. 
JetBlue is very good at taking something and seeing it as a system. So it makes sense to me that blue with black could see death as purely something that you can take advantage of. And then red is just someone on Grixis flicking the lights on and off. Death, life, death, life. <laughs> Rotating around Alara, we get to Jund, which is green, black, red. Death is pretty much as central to Jund as it is on Grixis, but it's much more about death being part of the circle of life, the circle of life, etc. And, you know, I think the red element is mostly the dragons, come to think of it. Yeah, I mean, you also get some of that spontaneity. The circle of life takes place on a daily basis for Jund, much in the way that the specter of death takes place on a daily basis on Grixis. Same specter, different day? Yeah. Different specter, same specter, same day? I don't know. <laughs> same specter, different shard. There we go. Red is also a color that represents intensity and doing everything to the fullest extent that it can possibly be done. So for Grixis and Jund both, this means an amplification of systems that we see on a much smaller basis. Jund takes the green-black idea that everything in nature's system can be exploited, consumed, and used to make yourself bigger, and turn that up to 11. You can go from being a dragon whelp one day to being this gigantic, massive, monstrous dragon the next. And then eventually you're going to be eaten. That's a fair assessment. The pendulum swings multiple ways very, very quickly on Jund. At contrast with a more normal predator-prey relationship, which is a little more stable. Now we move on to Tarkir, where there was only one three-color combination that involved red-black, and that was the Mardu Horde on Old Tarkir. The Mardu Horde are red-black-white, which means that their red-black, do-whatever-we-want nature is tempered by the idea of community and solidarity. This represents something like the Mongol Horde, which pillaged and ravaged all sorts of countrysides, but also stuck together. They're just one big angry family. Which I think makes their change into the Colagon, their loss of the color white to be just red-black, very interesting. Because as a mobile band of warriors, there wasn't a ton of community as there was, but the difference between the two organizations is that they lost what they had. There was a feeling that they just kind of needed to keep up with Colagon and not get in her way, which is something I still I still struggle with a bit. It's a little hard to figure out, well, you've got to settle down sometime. Not permanently, but you can't always be running. Eventually, you need to stop, make camp, and eat something. And I'm not always clear of what pushed the Mardu to the Colagon then. Many of the shifts between the three-color combination of the clans to the two-color combination of the dragon broods is the idea that they are being overtaken by a foe that they cannot hope to defeat, and that something needs to give in what they're doing in order to persist. Adapt to survive. Exactly. For the Abzan working with the Dromoka, as we've gone over in the past, they had to get rid of a tradition of necromancy. For the Mardu, when you have to adjust to... Working alongside a red-black force, there's not a whole lot of reasoning with it. Red-black doesn't have time for reason. Reason gets in the way of what I want. So 
The only way to survive when you're being hunted by a red-black force, at least from the Mardu perspective, is to go in the same direction as it. Whether you're outrunning it or trying to keep up with it, as long as you are moving along with it in the same direction, if you're working towards the same ends, you can mostly keep from running into it. So the thing that they sacrifice is sticking all tightly close together, having these rituals, having these rules and traditions that bind them together, because that just makes them a neater target for the Kolagon to eat. Instead, they spread out, work with the dragons, or at least go on the same path as them, and in this way, they can survive. When you're fighting against a red-black thing, sometimes just surviving is victory. Getting on to our next organization, we have the Red-Black Vampires of Innistrad. Justifying vampires in red-black was a little bit of an inspired choice for Innistrad, because historically they'd been pretty securely mono-black, and I guess occasionally they could trend into black-white when you have the, the cleric Healy side of vampires, but even up to that point, not very frequently. But I think that the way that Innistrad does vampires makes a lot of sense. Vampires as a mono-black tribe makes a lot of sense. A vampire is a creature that is generally evil and is motivated by little more than its quest for power and really its quest to survive, but that survival involves feeding on, sometimes turning, depending on the vampire mythos, at least taking from something else, and it does not usually come willingly. In short, they want to suck your blood. <laughs> You're not wrong. <laughs> Where the Innistrad vampires tend to get their red element is in a bit more lack of restraint than the average vampire. They are giving into that kind of primal urge, a primal urge that can show up in slightly different ways in both red and in green. Red is the one that's more likely to go into a, a frenzy, a kind of a bloodlust. Green will maybe acknowledge that it is motivated by instinct, but it's not quite as often going to go berserk rage, I can't stop myself. The Innistrad vampires have so little restraint in their bloodlust that the only white-black vampire on Innistrad, Soren Markov, had to build in a system of angels to stop the vampires from eating so much that they killed all the humans on Innistrad. The red-black nature of the vampires on Innistrad is also shown to an extent in their extravagance. Olivia Voldaren is the Dracula, the take on Dracula for Innistrad, and she is regularly seen to be hosting lavish parties, and even on non-Voldaren vampires, we are seeing this emphasis on mansions and manors and massive gatherings and feasts of, of blood and presumably other blood-based products. <laughs> blood and blood byproducts. Blood and blood accessories. I don't think that vampires eat anything else. Anyway, that extravagance is another intersection between black and red. Red would be the color that is willing to show off this, well, oh, look at this display of power. Look at this stuff that I have. Isn't this great? And you've gathered that because of a black-aligned motivation of bettering yourself or striking down your foes or showing that you're better than your foes. Another very red-black aspect of Voldaren parties is that they capture humans before they drain them and make them do tricks before they drain them. 
they actually make a sport of having humans at their parties as like food or cattle, but also like make them dance and prance around terrified for their lives because they know exactly what's going to happen at the end of this party. It's very upsetting. <laughs> very similar to that kind of sadism we saw in the Rakdos, except you are slightly more likely to be an unwilling participant on Innistrad. Whereas with the Rakdos, you're only sometimes an unwilling participant. Minotaurs have been around for a good long while, and early on they were mostly mono-red. But then we got to Theros, where we got red-black minotaurs. These minotaurs were a lot more bestial in a way. They were described as cannibalistic. Before Theros, most minotaurs were just blood-ragey warrior types. But red-black minotaurs on Theros also had an element of death worship, violence for its own sake, and reveling in the destruction of things. Reveling in destruction is perhaps a very appropriate term because it was through a war with Minotaurs that Xenagos achieved his ascension to godhood. He sent in the red-black aligned Minotaurs. They got beaten. The humans were celebrating. I think the Minotaurs also had some sort of ritual, and that's what helped him ascend. So perhaps there is some motivation to embrace this display of power inherent in this characterization of red-black. This is best exemplified by the Minotaur god, Mogis, god of slaughter. Mogis doesn't really care whose blood gets shed, as long as somebody's bleeding. By contrast, Mogis's twin brother is Oroas, the god of victory, and he is red-white. Oroas is more about the triumph of war, a, a more glorified, positive side where people are fighting honorably and aren't bleeding needlessly. And that is why Mogis and Oroas have this eternal struggle. If not honorably, then at the very least, with some kind of purpose. There is an end goal. There is an order to the madness of war in Eroas's eyes. Mogus just likes when things bleed. We can't talk about the Minotaurs on Theros without me mentioning a particular card, not really for philosophical reasons, just because I like it. Pensive Minotaur. It's two and a red for a 2-3 creature Minotaur warrior. It has no rules text, but a giant block of flavor text. The champion and her companions march through the night, but the battle was over before they arrived. In the middle of the carnage sat a solitary minotaur, lost in what seemed to the champion to be thought. Or, as it is more commonly described, but why leg? <laughs> the art has a minotaur just staring at a disembodied leg. I'm not entirely sure how to take this. It's strange that this is a red minotaur characterized by it thinking about its actions that feels a little more blue in some ways but you know what maybe we can justify it because like jacob said earlier you were talking about red might do something and then afterwards go oh my god that was awful oh no i'm so sorry maybe this minotaur is representing that it is a very pointed emotion to realize that you've caused harm and it's not a side of red that we explore a lot because we're usually in the midst of causing harm, this being a war game and all. We said before that red is the color of kind of all strong emotion, but this being a game where wizards fight is usually anger, not much else. We did get hug card in Cathartic Reunion, which was a nice change of pace. But usually it's about madness and fighting and ah! And rage. Rage! Monger. Yeah. <laughs> 
bringing it back to Minotaurs. Good job. I knew we'd get there. Jumping planes, but still sticking to a tribal theme. We have the Boggarts of Lorwyn, the goblins, who were red-black. The Boggarts were in some ways a more light-hearted take on what we discussed in the Rakdos. They loved causing mischief. In some ways, it was the primary reason for their existence was to do silly things that weren't necessarily as dangerous as the Rakdos. The Boggarts ran the gamut from harmless pranks that they found really funny to, actually, this might be causing someone harm. I also appreciate that they never really seemed as effective at mischief as the blue-black fairies did, which makes sense, because blue-black is all about getting things actually done in the shadows, and red-black just kind of bumbles through its pranks. Not to mention that the goblins were doing these things generally for entertainment, whereas the fairies were doing them for either sadistic entertainment or their own nefarious purposes. I'm having a little bit of trouble diagnosing exactly what changes in the Boggarts when Lorwyn swaps to Shadowmoor. They dropped black and picked up green. There were also the red-white hobgoblins, but I think they were kind of a separate entity. One of the things that distinguishes red-black goblins from red-green goblins, in my mind, is that the red-black goblins were also willing to do, like, just some gross stuff, like stick shrunken heads on pikes and whatnot, whereas the red-green goblins kind of got rid of that aspect of their personality. I think that's fair. Another red-black tribe from Lorwyn and or Shadowmoor, the Flamekin were mono-red, but when everything got dark and spooky, they turned into the Cinders, which are a red-black tribe. These are the humanoid elementals on Lorwyn slash Shadowmoor, the plane with two names. Yeah, not the weird hybrid ones, like Muldrifter, the flying fish bird serpent? Sure. Or Mornwelk, the turtle multi-headed snail? <laughs> or Supreme Exemplar? <laughs> which is five different animals in the tortilla. <laughs> I wish I were joking. It's like a manta ray body with five distinct, like a goat head and a lion head and three other heads sticking out. Someone tucked five animals into bed and accidentally fused the blanket together so they oh couldn't no. escape. <laughs> oh, no. Oh. God. But the flamekin are just human-shaped fire. Yeah, yeah. And they are a wonderful characterization of red. They are all about, both literally and figuratively, really burning in the moment. I have these things that I can do now, and I can enjoy life, so I'm going to do them. Burn brighter. No, brighter. Brighter! No, no, you'll burn out! Okay, there you go. The Cinders take a depressing turn because it's pretty much all of the flamekin extinguished. And rather than try to burn brightly as they can, they're forced to steal, up to and including stealing the life force of others, maybe other cinders, as the case may be. Bryce, this has been a lot of fun, but I can't take it anymore. Pirates are coming. I want to talk about pirates. Jacob, Jacob, far be it from me to stop you. Please talk about pirates. Pirates! Pirates Captain are- Captain Lattery Star! Sorry, sorry. Captain Lattery Star! <laughs> Got the better of me. Continue. Please continue. Yar. Pirates are in blue, black, red in Ixalan. The red-black aspects of pirates are really actually the lyrics from Yo-Ho, Yo-Ho, A Pirate's Life for Me. We pillage and plunder and don't give a hoot. Drink up, me hearties. Yo-Ho. <laughs> Inspiring, really. It's an ethos.
We see the Devil May Care attitude in some of the mono-red pirates. Angrath hasn't been spoiled yet, but if he turns out to be Tybalt like I'm hoping, he's definitely about destroying everything in his path. And even if not, the characters we have seen as part of his crew are all very rowdy, very gloriously destructive pirates. Very flamey pirates, too. True. And as we talked about last week, there's Captain Lannery Storm. Captain Lannery Storm. Yes. She just throws treasure off her ship to make it go faster. At least that's how I'm choosing to interpret her ability. (laughs) Or maybe she uses it to make her pillaging bigger and more fun. Technically, she throws away treasure so that she can drive a bigger boat. Okay, I'll take it. Ooh, what if she's just hiring more crew? But then they only stick around for a little while because then all the treasures run out. That could be too. I guess we'll wait and see what she does in the story. I'm sure we'll touch base with her at some point. One last kind of group that I'll talk about for a moment is the characterization of Marju that we saw in the first set of Commander decks. That's Kalia and Tariel, who are both kind of a divine fury idea. In fact, I think that something like Divine Fury was the name of that deck. I think it was Heavenly Inferno, actually. Not big difference. Yes, splitting divine hairs. Probably don't do that. You'll get fury. No, no, it won't end well. What these two characters bring to the table is a a kind of a balance, a, a yin and yang of, well, you know, the holy and the unholy. These are both representations of opposing forces collaborating in strange ways. In Kalia's case, she's a cleric, but for all of these powerful things, including the demonic, the divine, and the dragons, question mark. And then you have Tariel, who is an angel, and in some ways an angel of death, but is kind of not discriminating in what she brings back. She does pick things at random. It's not a super well-established space, but it would be a cool space that we could explore more as we get more characterizations of Mardu. Mardu being white, black, red, not the clan Mardu. Apologies, I broke my own rules. Tisk tisk. Well, admittedly, I only promised that for the Rakdos, so ha. I'm at least blue-white, so you know I like technicalities. Thank you for your undying patience, Color Philosophy fans. I'm so sorry that it took us this long to get around to Brilliant Spectrum again. I promise that it probably, probably, probably won't be quite as long till we hit the next Brilliant Spectrum. Well, Jacob, if someone needed to lodge a complaint with you the next time it takes us way too long to revisit a segment, where could they go? They could find me anywhere they find somebody named Frogger, spelled P-H-R-A-W-G-E-R. That's Twitter, that's Tumblr, that's Reddit. And yeah, I definitely check my ass box on Tumblr. I don't know what you're talking about. And Bryce, if someone wanted to kill you and then raise you from the dead with wild abandon, where would they be able to find you? They can find me on Tumblr as Walking Atlas, on Twitter as Walking underscore Atlas, or you can email us at the.atlas.walks at gmail.com. I think I'd prefer to not be Grixis Unearthed. I'm definitely more a fan of the Innistrad Blessed Sleep. For more Talking Atlas, find us on iTunes, Google Play, or our website, opalnebula.com. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard today, please consider finding us on Patreon at patreon.com slash talkingatlas. Thank you all for embracing the wild ambition of Black Red, and until next time, happy planeswalking. Walking.